Hi, Shannon Waller here, and welcome to Inside Strategic Coach with Dan Sullivan. Dan, you have been talking about one of my very favorite things to discuss and be in conversation about, and that is teamwork. It's kind of interesting. Our clients, you know, they're always looking at getting better at teamwork as a means to how to achieve their bigger end goals. But you have a very particular way of thinking about it, and you communicate that in fun ways to our team, and you also give some great coaching to our clients about how they can get better at teamwork. So I thought we'd just kick off with one of the most interesting compliments I've ever heard if you don't mind sharing that, you've told several of our team members, I'll just have you say it actually, because it's really fun. What's one of the greatest teamwork compliments that you can give, Dan? Yeah, well, I really work on teamwork all the time, Shannon, because it allows me more and more to refine my own unique ability, you know, which is the central building block and strategic coach for everything else that we do. My goal, you know, every quarter is that I use less of my time to generate more teamwork on my team. So I'm clear about my projects and the new endeavors that I would like us to take on and clearer about the results and the impact of the results. But at the same time, I'm less and less about telling anybody how to do what they do actually uniquely well. So what I try to do is that I just focus my time and what I do uniquely well. And then what time I do other than just focusing on my own unique ability activities is just to use them for communication to actually, you know, outline very, very clear cut results of projects that I think are really great. I give 50% permission on every project that my team members can tell me, I think there's another way of achieving this, which I'm very happy to receive. I'm also very, very open to not knowing how they're going to get the results because that's what they're good at. So first of all, before I say what my compliment is, I just wanted to say what my method is. And that's really my method. And I get better at this. You know, I'm I'm better this quarter than I was last quarter, and I'm extraordinarily better at this than I was 10 years ago. And I expect in the future, after each quarter and after each decade of my life, that I'll be better at this particular capability. Less time for me doing what others do better and using my time much more intelligently to give purpose to other people's capabilities. Having said that, I tell the team members, and I've got some long-time relationships here, 20 years, you know, 15 years, lots of great progress and success within relationships. And I say, I just want to tell you that the greatest compliment that I can give you that when I'm not actually working with you, I'm not thinking about you. And that takes some explaining. What I mean is I'm so confident that we're clear about what we're trying to achieve that I don't have to think about you. And I'm so confident about your capability to achieve the results that I'm not thinking about you. It's such a powerful compliment. It's unexpected. I think the assumption is people want other people thinking about them, but you you give so much room and so much permission and you're so open. I've actually haven't heard you say this before, Dan. You give 50% permission to the other person to come at it their own way, to come up with it, you know, even expand the idea. 
you know, so you spend less and less time doing what others do better. What a phenomenal way to say that. It's probably the opposite of the command and control, you know, top down, someone outlining every single step. And if someone doesn't adhere to exactly that way of doing it, they'll get punished in some way. There's so much more of an openness, a creativity, a collaborative nature to the teamwork with you. And your team delivers spectacular results. You know, even in the background, you got surprised with a really cool video the other day. And it's just this celebration of creativity and what people can pull off together. But you do give direction. You do give a really clear picture of what the end goal looks like. You want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah. Along with Babs, I do have an overview the company and we have sort of a front stage backstage approach almost like a theater approach to what our entrepreneurial company is and we tend to communicate to our entrepreneurial clients that there's a usefulness of thinking of their business regardless of what industry they're in as a theater production you have an audience you have a performance and in theater You see teamwork front stage. There's definitely teamwork among actors. And there's the whole teamwork that the audience actually comes into contact with, including, you know, the actual individuals who are in the performance and everything else. But there's a vast amount of teamwork backstage, you know, to make the whole theater building work and the production work. And so I'm primarily interested on what's on stage, you know? So my work tends to come out in the form of new thinking processes in the workshops, the overall form of a workshop, you know, what the quality of a workshop is and, you know, how it's scheduled, how it's structured and how it proceeds during the day. And I have different kinds of workshops. I'm always cognizant that people in the realm of entertainment have some favorites that they like seeing over and over again, but they also want to see new performance. They want to see new new plays, if you will, or new songs. So I've got to be very, very clear about that. And then I've got to create new material in such a way that other coaches can easily master this new thing and then actually do a great job of coaching in their workshops because, you know, we do 500 workshops a year if you take all the coaches involved. And, you know, I do maybe a fifth, maybe a fifth of those. And we have other coaches. And coaching isn't their main business. Their main business is actually their company and their entrepreneurial life. But what I'm doing is that I more and more every quarter, I notice every 90 days, I've got a bigger overview of how the whole thing works. And I've been at this for just in terms of our workshop company, I've been at it for 32 years worth of quarters. So four times 32. I just get a sense that you can always improve. I always get a sense that you can get results faster. I always get a result that all the teamwork that it takes to do my part of it, I feel that that can get better, but it only gets better by me being better at what I am and giving maximum support for the other members of the team to be better at what they do. Mm -hmm. I love that, Dan. That mindset, I think, is 
particularly powerful for anyone in a leadership position. And I also like the always getting better. You know, you're better at it than you were last quarter and next quarter you'll be better at it than you are now. You talked earlier about giving purpose to other people's mm-hmm. unique abilities. And that conversation, that topic has come up in the workshops quite a bit. Can you say more about that? Yeah, well, we've really struck gold with a concept that came up about two or three years ago and then became a book. It's a best-selling book. It's an idea that's so simple that when you say the three words, most people get the idea. And the concept is who, not how, okay? So that when you think of achieving a goal, instead of seeing yourself being the person who does all the work to achieve the goal, you stop that inclination. (laughs) You know, you prevent yourself from taking something, you know, which is natural for most people. We've been trained and educated that, of course, we have to do the work on our goals. And I said, no, I'm just going to stop. And I'm going to say, now, who could achieve that better than me? Mm -hmm. You know, so my job is to get a hold of a result in the future that's bigger and better and to test it out whether this is good for us you know really i know it'll be good for me because i like anything that's new bigger and better (laughs) but the question is is it good for us is it good for the team that i'm working with is it good for the company is it good for the entrepreneurs so more and more i've learned to stop my own inclination to take on a lot of work and stop and simply say now who can actually achieve this? And is there one person in particular who can become the leader of the project and then create the teamwork with other people's capabilities that's going to achieve the goal? Okay, so this is the real trick. And I just really am noticing that it's becoming a habit. It's becoming a habit that I immediately switch. Now who can do this? And then the other thing I have to take into consideration, they already have full schedules. There's nobody in our company that doesn't have more than enough to do, okay? And I can't be the one to tell them that they have to stop doing other things and take on my newest project, okay? I've learned to say, look, there's something that's really important here, and this is what it looks like, and... I think it's accessible to us. I think it's something that we can take on. It doesn't take, you know, a long time for us to get started on this. I think it's measurable. I think we can get a really good measurement here. Then it's achievable. And quite frankly, I try to keep everything achievable within a 90-day period. Right. Then I communicate that. And we have a tool called an impact filter. And I've got a brand new tool this year called Certainty Uncertainty, which is a beauty. When I created it, I said, boy, if I'd had this in the 1970s, where I'd be? And I said, actually, it's taken all the experience since the 1970s just to get to the point where I can actually create a tool like this. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it has been a transformative thinking and communication tool in terms of teamwork. And it sets normal thinking on its head. Yeah. Well, it's got four parts to it. It's got three parts for defining the project. And then we always have another part, which is what did thinking about this do to your thinking? You know, this is kind of a running theme underneath everything we do. But I get possibilities 
For example, I have a collaborator, terrific collaborator by the name of Tucker Max. And Tucker has a marvelous company that helps entrepreneurs write books. Anything you need to write a book, all you have to do is contact Scribe. That's the name of the company. So Tucker came to me when he joined Strategic Coach. And he said, you know, I've got a really thick book that teaches entrepreneurs all the good things that will happen if they write a book. But you wrote a little book, which is called The Book Breakthrough. And he said, it's got some great stuff in there that I never thought of purely from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And he said, why don't we write a third book? I'll take some of my book, take some of your book, and we'll create a third book, which combines the best of both books. And I said, that's terrific. And he said, I'll just interview you and I'll write it and I'll produce it. And so he did. And it was very, very smooth. I think I spent about four hours with him and he just picked my brain. And then we got the book and then we sent it out and we got a great reaction from our clients. And I said, you know, Tucker, why don't we just do workshops? Why don't we just do two hour special workshops? Because this all happened during the COVID period. So everything's by Zoom. So you can put on a workshop really, really fast. And we did. And the interesting thing about it is that I showed him, I was dealing with a number of problems where you have, you have a problem that you have a huge possibility, but there's things about it that you're just not certain. And generally what happens with entrepreneurs, when they have a big possibility and they're not certain, they get paralyzed. Huh. And I said, I think there's a way around this. And I said, why don't I just say why I'm so excited about this idea? You know, this is a huge possibility. I think there's a possibility of a real breakthrough here. And there's a real advantage to us if we pull that off. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about that, because there's some things that we're doing right now that I'm really certain about. When you look at this, I think there's about half of this that I think that we already know how to do. We already have the information. We already have proof that it works. But on the other hand, there's about half of it since it's new and we've never done that before. I just don't know about. And then I write five things that I'm certain of and five things that I'm not certain of. Okay. And then I just show it to the people who would be the best people who would have the answers or they'd be the best people to find out the answers or create the solutions. Then I don't do anything more. I just don't do anything more because my job was to see if I could get the thing started and put it in the hands of those who have knowledge, who have capabilities, have resources. And it's a beautiful thing because it's not that I'm not confident about the project. It's that as confident as I am about the project, I just realize that there's a lot of things I don't know about that. And that's a great solution for entrepreneurs because uncertainty is not lack of confidence. Right. It's just lack of knowledge or lack of information. And I think we make a separation there. And it's a beautiful thing because... You can start a project and make some really rapid progress on the project, but there's still a lot more to go. But you're always getting the sense that real success is being achieved and you get the satisfaction that you have momentum on the project and everybody's morale is high. And guess what? There's more that we have to do. So I think it's kind of a breakthrough from a thinking process. And all you have to do is the 
projects are always about turning the uncertainties into certainties. And that's what's so, I'm going to use the word magical about this, because when you're certain about something, there's no new teamwork possible, right? It's already been figured out. But the uncertainty is where all the teamwork pours in, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's what's so people are like, oh, I know that. I can go get that information. So that's been what you've experienced when you've been sharing your certainty, uncertainty projects in that particular format. You know, describe what the impact has been on the people that you're sharing it with. You can be very, very confident, but uncertain. Mm. But by the same token, you can be very certain, but not confident. Right. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs live their lives very certain, but not confident. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that they worry at night. <laughs> they do all their worrying alone and isolated, but they always put on the, you know, an act that they're certain you know, well, I know we're going to do this. Don't worry about it and don't worry about this. But at nighttime, they said, geez, I don't know if we can pull this off. And, you know, I don't even know what my people are doing. And I, I don't even know if they even understand what we're doing here and everything else. I often say, you know, entrepreneurs, by making the decision to be an entrepreneur, you've declared to the world, I'm not going to play other people's games. I'm going to play my own game. But then they design their own game so that they can't win it, mm -hmm. which seems to me somewhere along the line connected to insanity. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So by communicating really clearly, Dan, you leave so much room open for teamwork. And it's really interesting because, you know, you're talking about, you know, people already have a full list. They already have a full day figured out. But when you present, you know, in terms of impact filter, uncertainty, uncertainty, your new idea, people are making room for those projects. Why do you think that is? I mean, they're the ones to tell me where this fits into the priority list of everything that's underway. I mean, I'm not paying attention to the busyness of other people. First of all, it's not a useful thing for me to be doing because they're the ones to tell me. I mean, I can guess at what's true, but I have no information about it. In the strategic coach, one of our very fundamental tools, and it has been for more than a quarter of a century, is the Colby Index, you know, where people are able to identify how they take action to get results. And I'm one who takes action to get results by just going into motion, you know, I can't really figure out something that may be missing, you know, what people would call research. I can't really research until I've already made a decision and gone into action. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's a strength of mine because I'm a great starter of things because I don't worry that I've got everything necessary to start something. I just start it. And then very quickly, that which is missing becomes very clear to me. However, on my team, I need people who have totally different approaches to getting results. And one of them, there are people who are going to find out all the necessary facts. They're going to get all the information necessary for it to be a successful project. They're called fact finders, and they lead with that. And there's other people who are just very good at putting together systems of action and systems of completion who are called follow-throughs. And then there's other people, you know, where it involves anything that requires, you know, hands-on demonstrations of things. They're implementers. 
And the truth is that the best teams have the full use of all four of those different modes in terms of different people. So the thing about it is that when I'm dealing with someone who, you know, is really good at lists and really good at completing lists and really good at following through on things and doing things systematically, my approach to them is said, hey, I've got this idea. Tell you the truth, I don't even know if it's possible, okay? And I don't even know when it's possible. And right now, I don't even know how it's going to get done. But can I tell you the idea, okay? And so I'll tell them the idea. And I've said, so I'd appreciate it if you just think about this and give me some feedback on if it's possible. And is it a priority for us right now compared to everything else we're doing? And then I walk away. And quite frankly, I've done the best that I can do on that project just by communicating that and walking away because the other person really knows how to think this through. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to put them under any pressure that they have to do this until they come back and they've worked it out in their mind exactly how it can be done and how important it is. One of the analogies I use is how to pass the baton. You know, Mm -hmm. you want the right runner in the right place in the race. I call it unique ability relay. You know, that's skill number one, skill number two is passing the baton, right? You know, you know what your role is in the race, Dan, getting it started, and then you pass it off. And the other person, some people might be worried that they drop it, but they don't because you have given them such freedom and opportunity to express their own creativity and capabilities and pursue the project. The other thing I feel like I need to mention is you have, with all of your projects that you're sold on, you're bought into, you do the impact filter. And we know that you filter out a bunch of ideas. So when you do hand that over to the team, they grab hold, right? We know that it's not just a willy-nilly thought in the hallway, so to speak, (laughs) when we were together. You know, it's something that you've thought through and that you are sold on, you're bought into. And that's a really important fact. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes just go, oh, they just think of an idea and express it, but they're actually not committed to it. And then the other person commits and there's this disconnect on that project. And the person comes back and their entrepreneur is like, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And the other person's like, oh, <laughs> I just put three weeks into that. So you have a completely different take on that process and it works extraordinarily well. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, now that you're pointing that out, I'm thinking about the difference between the impact filter, which is a an amazing tool. I mean, it's uh, really, really, really does a lot of good for our entrepreneurs when they learn how to do the impact filter. And it takes you a half hour to master it. Our tools are very, very fast. But I was thinking of the difference between the certainty, uncertainty tool and the impact filter here. And I'm selling myself on both projects, but I'm selling myself on something different. Okay. And I just realized what the difference is. With the impact filter, a lot of things are known. A lot of things are known. Capabilities are known. And to a general sense, the result that I'm sold on here has been generally accepted within the company and within the team. We've accepted, you know, that this kind of result has to happen. And what I've done is that I've just sold myself totally on a particular result and by a particular time, if possible. And I don't try to sell the team on it until I'm sold. And I want them to know that I'm not 
experimenting here that I'm completely sold. I'm completely sold. And they know it's 100%. They know it's 100% when I give it to them. You know, I mean, I still have leeway that I don't know exactly how they're going to pull off the result, but I'm totally sold on the result. Okay. Mm -hmm. On the certainty, uncertainty, I'm sold on the possibility. Mm, Nice. Okay. And I think the difference between result and possibility is a time factor that results can be seen within a short-term perspective and possibilities you can't really see what the time frame is. You can't really see the time frame. And so I wouldn't do this on a small thing. I would do this on a big thing. Yes. That's really helpful. That's a phenomenal distinction because both of them are project communication tools. But being really clear, it's like, oh, this is something, it almost needs to get a little bit further fleshed out and then it could turn into an impact filter, right? In terms of that shorter term result. Or it could turn into 10 impact filters. Right. Every uncertainty could be an impact filter that produces a certainty. So I think the one is more like a, a sudden new vision of a major direction you know, for a strategic coach or a major direction for, you know, one of the programs 10 times. And oftentimes it takes advantage of new situations like mm-hmm. when COVID happened and we had no alternative except to master Zoom. Zoom wasn't just an emergency solution. Very, very soon, and we did a lot of work right at the beginning of this, Shannon, I was a month into this, and I said, this might be one of the biggest opportunities we've ever had in the more than 30-year history of the company to really achieve some amazing progress really quickly. You know, we had to replace cash flow, and we had to keep the company afloat, and that was the immediate little bit of fear. But as soon as we got into it and we started producing results in Zoom, like workshop results, I said, this may be the biggest thing that's happened to us in 32 years. Mm -hmm. But in the space of a year and a half, we've had phenomenal progress, but we've just scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. And that's why I talk about being in love with the possibility. And we've done a lot of impact filters to get the short-term results. So maybe that example kind of shows you how the two of them go together. But people don't think about possibilities of being sold on a possibility. And the reason is that people keep things in their head until they have certainty. But I said, no, I have some certainty and I also have uncertainty. And the uncertainty information is actually more valuable than the certainty information. Yeah, it's what you know and what you don't know. It seems to me like such a phenomenal tool to start a new line of business, a new company, I actually was using it on my newest book, which was super helpful to realize, okay, what am I certain about? And then what was I uncertain about? It was like, you know, just cascaded out of my brain, which was really fun because those are the questions you need to get answered to finish the book, right? So it's just such a great way to help capture your own thinking and your own questions to some extent. And then it's again incredible how many people with very different Colby MOs, you know, jump in to go, oh, I could figure that out or I have that information or together we can work on it. I love talking to you about teamwork as always. So before we go, and we're going to talk into three questions that you always ask, which I think is very cool of yourself, but I want you to share 
you give people an enormous amount of freedom in terms of how they do what they do. But you picked up a great expression from Admiral Nelson, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. If you could share that anecdote, because I think for me, it's kind of indicative of, even though it's an old back in time example, it really describes uniquely teamwork really well. I got, as a child, really got hooked on history. My mother was a great influence here. And there's certain types of national history and military history that I really like. And one of them is Great Britain. I've always been very, very interested in British history because being an American, you know, the American experience comes out of British history and comes out of British military history. Probably the most glamorous period of British history is the time around 1800, the Napoleonic Wars. It was the last of the where I would say that romance was attached to warfare. Mm -hmm. I think since then, warfare is not romantic. Warfare is really brutal and grueling. But the other thing, it was very colorful. It was probably the most colorful period of romantic history in terms of people's uniforms. But the other thing is the stories that were written about that, and especially the British Navy, which was a remarkable institution. I mean, very small country when you think about the island, the UK, including Ireland, that they controlled the world. I mean, for from a Navy standpoint, probably from, I would say, the middle of the 1700s till the Second World War, the British Navy really, really controlled the seas. And at the time, of Admiral Nelson, who's considered the greatest sea captain probably of all time. Mm -hmm. The center of London is Trafalgar Square, and Trafalgar is a monument to Admiral Nelson. You know, he's buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. You know, he was kind of a, physically wasn't a particularly impressive individual. He was kind of short. And at the Battle of Trafalgar, where he was killed. He was actually killed during the battle. But it's probably one of the most important naval victories for any country in history, where he defeated the combined fleet of the French and the Spanish. And Napoleon was emperor of France. So it was a major blow in defeating Napoleon. And the Navy was an interesting thing because each ship was an entrepreneurial company. And a lot of people don't realize this, that the British had this immense worldwide Navy, but they really did it on the cheap. They really watched their accounting books when they put this together. So just to think about a ship is that you would think just of a fighting ship, and these were sailing ships, and they had made enormous improvements. The other thing is that at the time of Admiral Nelson, these were the finest wooden sailing ships that had ever been created. Mm -hmm. And they never got any better because within 25 years, they were replaced by metal and steam. And so this was the, the height in human history of fighting ships that were made out of wood and sailing. They were very, very fast. They had an amazing amount of teamwork to actually handling all the sails and understanding the currents and understanding the wind. And Admiral Nelson, Horatio, was a genius, not only at understanding how the ships worked, but he was a genius at understanding how ships' crews worked. 
So a major fleet like the one that was involved in Trafalgar would have anywhere for a dozen to 15 fighting ships. And these were formidable. Each one of them was very formidable. They'd have 40 to 60 very, very powerful guns, and they could shoot out both sides, the really good ones. They could do three complete rounds of you know, loading, pulling it back, putting things. They could do th- three shots in five minutes, and it was just an amazing, powerful force. That was true for the French, too, and that's true for the Spanish. Americans already had a really good navy about that. But there was something about the way the British ran their navy that each company was an entrepreneurial institution. That meant the goal of the battle was not to sink the enemy, it was to capture the enemy. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that was your property. So when you captured an enemy ship, they belonged to you and you would even use their crew to sail it back to port where you sold it. And everything that was on that ship was yours. And you know the officers on the ship got their share and the, all the men. On, and as a result, the Navy didn't have to pay too much for this because the crews earned their keep by capturing it. And they had phenomenal captains. So each of the captains could have had his own fleet. But Nelson had a dozen, you know, he probably had a dozen really, really great captains, and they were all very competitive. And, you know, they all wanted to be Admiral Nelson, but they operated as a unified team of ships. The other trick was that you wanted to be so successful as a captain that you became wealthy, Mm -hmm. because if you became wealthy, you could buy a lot of extra gunpowder and cannonballs which meant that you could practice where the enemy couldn't practice because they didn't have enough, you know, they only got supplied by their country with a certain amount of gunpowder. And so the wealthier you were, the more gunpowder you could have. So Admiral Nelson's, his ship and all the other ships, these were very wealthy companies, okay? And they just practiced, practiced, practiced. They practiced alone, they practiced together, they practiced at distance, everything. So. With Trafalgar, and this sort of exemplifies Nelson's philosophy, the night before, they always did it first thing in the morning. You wanted to give yourself a lot of daylight hours, so they started at dawn for the most part. And the night before, all the officers got together with Admiral Nelson, and he said, now, he said, you're great captains. He says, each of you is a great captain. You've proven yourself, you know, in other battles, how good you are. You have great ships. You have great crews. And you know what to do. You know what to do. He says, so this is the last time I'm going to be talking until after we win the battle. That's so different. Yeah. So he says, here's the thing. Use your own wits. He says, once the battle starts, he said, you know, it's unpredictable. So you have to respond and be alert and, you know, and be responsive to what's going on. I only ask you one thing. Whatever risks you take, don't do it at the disadvantage of the fleet. Mm-hmm. So those were the rules. They could take any risk they wanted, but don't put everybody else at risk here. And then they went out and it was a route. Mm-hmm. It was a route. I just love that teamwork lesson. Take all the risks you want, but not at, you know, don't risk the Don't disadvantage fleet. the fleet. Don't disadvantage the fleet. Yes, I love that rule. I mean, that's my attitude, George Coach. Take the risks you want, but 
don't put the rest of us at risk. Well, I think that's powerful for entrepreneurial team leaders as well, because it's a looser structure than what I picture a corporate structure. Because It's been a long time since I had to deal with that. Thank goodness. But it's looser. But that thing to keep in mind is really key. Yeah. And it's an amazing, you know, because Britain by that time was the most entrepreneurial country mm-hmm. in the world. And the British army was not entrepreneurial. It was top-down bureaucracy, you know, top to bottom. But the Navy, because, you know, once a ship sails out of port, the government has no control over that ship. You know, it's just the captain and the officers. And so they realized that that bureaucracy, which actually is really required in an army, you know, that you have to have chain of command and there has to be connection between the political leaders and the military leaders. In the Navy, it's totally different that the commander of the fleet, that was God, you know, Mm -hmm. that was God for six months, you know, like there was no other authority higher than the fleet commander. And he was pretty quiet spoken. Shannon, you and I just shared a book called The Secret of Our Success, and it makes the distinction between domination and prestige. Uh And the best leaders are not dominating leaders. The best leaders are those who have just enormous prestige. In other words, they're so admired and so respected that they don't have to be dominating. And I try to be that. You know, I try not to ever, you know, use force of will or force of argument to win. I would just like to come up with good ideas that are sort of compelling for my team. (laughs) You're excellent at that, Dan. Thank you. Unique at that, I should say. Dan, let's just wrap up in terms of how people can take action on this. There's been so many phenomenal things to take away in terms of mindset. But you have three teamwork questions that you ask yourself when you are starting a project. Because really, you know, giving the intention to the project is kind of how you've defined your role. But can you share with us your three questions? Because I think they're quite compelling as well. Well, There are three keep Dan out of trouble questions more than teamwork. (laughs) Teamwork is a way I have found of keeping Dan out of trouble, you know, so. I don't know an entrepreneur that doesn't need that too, by the way. (laughs) Keeping me out of complexity and confusion and other things where I tried to take action where I'm not really the person to be taking action. Yeah, three questions I asked myself, and you know, to a certain extent, any project that we undertake at Coach, we're solving a problem, okay? There's a problem, I mean, you're taking advantage of a solution, but you're also solving a problem. So by completing the project, you now have a new capability where it was a problem before that you didn't have that capability. And that's how I think of mm-hmm. projects. So my very first question, when I get an idea for a new achievement, a new capability, I say, can I solve this problem by doing nothing? <laughs> it's so counterintuitive. Because most entrepreneurs, they're already gun ho with the new idea. It's already achieved in their mind. You know, they just want to know, if they can get a hold of a different champagne to celebrate. And it it doesn't even exist yet, and they're already there. My first instinct is to go so counter against that and say, is there any way that this solution can be pulled off with me not doing anything at all? Okay. Now, almost never is that the case. (laughs) But on the other hand, by asking myself the question, I've reduced the chances 
by 95% that I'm going to approach the project the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I love that. This is such a great treaty on how to implement who, not how, is the first thing that popped into my head. Second question is, what's the least thing I have to do to get the project started? Again, I'm keeping Dan where he's good and not allowing him to get out of hand. <laughs> I love it. Staying on your side of the line. It's perfect. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. Because as I have learned to take more responsibility for one person, I've had more and more access to the capabilities of other people. Mm. That's very cool. Yeah. I don't have to control other people. I have to control one person. That could be a whole other podcast. (laughs) Yeah, when you're not taking responsibility for yourself, you try and take responsibility for other people. But the more you just own who this is, the more it actually allows you to be in teamwork with others. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So Dan, what's question number three? Question number three is, who's the who, the other person, who can take care of this in such a way that almost nothing or the least amount is required for me after they take over. Mm -hmm. So that's really about finding the most capable who around you. Mm. Now, this is just a conversation with myself. These three questions, just a conversation for myself. Okay, so I've really kind of got Dan under control by the time I've gotten to the end of these questions. Then it's one of the two tools that I normally use. It's either an impact filter or it's a certainty, uncertainty thinking tool that I would do. And then again, it goes back to the logic that we've already talked about. Is this something where the result is already agreed upon that this is a good thing, but we haven't defined what the result actually is and when the result will happen. And we know the skills and the capabilities and the resources are there. And we already know this is gonna be a good thing. The team will just wanna know if I'm 100% sold on that result to start with. And that's by getting those three questions answered in my mind, then it's just about the result. It's not about anything going on inside me. Mm -hmm. Dan, part of what I love about these three questions is you focus on the small part of it that is you, but then also has you be very, very alert, curious, responsive, and resourceful about the talents around you. If there's any reason to have unique ability team around you, this is it because it frees you up to just be you and do your unique ability. So I like it because it means that you're so attentive to other people's skills, strengths, talents, you know, how their mental energy plays out, their Colby profiles, and you start looking and you're very conscious about, oh, this is the who. You can answer question number three that can take care of this with me doing the least or nothing. So it just has you paying attention to people in a very different way, I think, than most traditional perspectives on teamwork. So I love these three questions. They're very fun. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great conversation as always, Dan, on teamwork. I always learn something new. Well, I think it's going to be more important as, I mean, this is recent, you know, our coming up with these questions. I mean, it's a week old, but I think when all the team members know that I ask myself these three questions before I even start filling in one of the tools, I think that gives him confidence too, that he kind of cleaned himself up, you know. He's not going to dabble. He's not going to interfere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.